Welcome to another episode of our digitally remastered old-time radio shows from SolvedMystery.com. Visit our website for complete collections of your favorite old-time radio series. Remember to follow us so you won't miss new releases from SolvedMystery.com. How do you do? I've been asking myself why it is that criminal trials grip the imagination of the meekest law-abiders among us. What is the psychological urge that holds us to the crime columns of our daily papers and sends so many of us packing to the public seats of the law courts? It's quite a question, isn't it? Well, I've got an explanation for you. I'd like to read to you a few lines written by a great British statesman and political writer of the 18th century, Edmund Burke. This is what he says. The annals of criminal jurisprudence exhibit human nature in a variety of positions at once the most striking, interesting, and affecting. The real culprits as original characters stand forward on the canvas of humanity as prominent objects for our special study. How well that slightly antique phrase applies to the macabre figure of Dr. Buck Ruxton, who slew his English wife, lovely Isabel, and Mary Rogerson, their servant, and dissected their unfortunate remains into 200 all but unidentifiable parts. Women in the crowded gallery of the court grew faint and retired while expert witnesses gave evidence that was indisputable. And all the time, the prisoner's written confession lay in a sealed envelope addressed to a Sunday newspaper and in the custody of a friend who had strict instructions that it was only to be opened in the event of his death. But uh, let me take you back, back to early September 1935. We shall go to the little English town of Lancaster. It's a pretty place. And at number two, Dalton Square, we find the well-loved Dr. Ruxton at work in his surgery. Think the little chap will be all right now, Doctor? Uh, he will be all right, Mrs. Davis. It was quite a simple operation, you know. But but if he should be a little fretful when the anesthetic wears off, just give him one of these tablets crushed up in water. Oh, thank you, Doctor. You're, you're so kind. Uh, now you run along and look after yourself and try to get a good night's rest. Mm-hmm. And keep the little lad quiet, won't you? Oh, huh? Of course. And thank you again. You're so patient with children. Not at all, my dear lady. Good night to you. Good night, Dr. Ruxton. I'll look into him in the morning. Isabel! Isabel! Madam's gone to bed, sir. Oh, it is you, Mary, huh? She had a headache and turned in early, sir. Ah, she did, did she? Yes, sir. You have a cigarette, Mary? No, thank you, sir. Nice stockings you are wearing, huh? Sit down. No, thank you, sir. I'd rather stand. My wife went out this evening, didn't she? Yes. Where did she go? She went round to the dispenser for the children's medicine. You are lying, aren't you, Mary? Huh? I'm sure I don't know what you mean, sir. She has got a lover, hasn't she? And that is where she went this evening, to see him, huh? Why don't you be frank? I know all about it. I'm sure you're wrong, sir. How old are you, my dear? I'm 20. You are a very pretty girl. Come here, I want to talk to you, huh? Oh, no, no! What's this? So you are here, huh? Yes. You may go, Mary. Yes, ma'am. I'm sorry. It's all right. You may go. How dare you, Buck? I've warned you before about that girl. She's clean and decent. You wouldn't understand. 
I know she is in league with you, huh? I was trying to make her tell me about your love affairs. Oh, you swine. Your mind's full of black shadows and filthy, horrible things. They exist only in your imagination. You're trying to make yourself believe that I'm unfaithful, but you know that I'm not. I know that you are, Isabel. Do you think I do not notice the sidelong glances you exchange with any man who happens to turn up? Of course, I see it every time we go out. You married me. It was an experiment, wasn't it, huh? And now you had enough. There is only one treatment for you. <laughs> Isabel. Speak to me, Isabel. I, I am sorry. I am, I am not fit to live. Please forgive me. Oh, God, I forgive you back. I always do after these scenes. If only you would strike me or punish me for my wickedness. I I love you so much. Mommy! Mommy! The children are awake. I must go to them. The complex story of Ruxton's abnormal personality was never revealed during the trial. He had an inferiority kink which he carried throughout his life and did his poor unfortunate wife suffer for it. As an officer in the Royal Indian Medical Corps, he had associated with Englishmen on equal terms, on duty. But off parade, he'd imagined himself to be the subject of persecution. He fought against this with amazing pertinacity and made up his mind that he would carve out a career that the English would respect. It became an obsession. <laughs> number two, Dalton Square, Lancaster, a few days later. The 15th of September, the time, 1 a.m. Maybe jump. Whatever are you doing up at this time? Shh. What's happened? It's him. He's been going on like a madman since the surgery closed. He's been threatening to kill you when he came back. I nearly went for the police, but I thought of the scandal, ma'am. Oh, oh, poor Mary. He didn't do anything to you, did he? No, I locked myself in with the children. I'd have run away if it hadn't been for them. And you? Oh, my poor child. You must leave here in the morning. It isn't a fit place for you. Give me your hand. You're trembling. I'm not really afraid. It was the look in his eyes. There, there, you should sleep with me. The children are all right, are they? Yes, I've locked them in. Here's the key. Oh, this is dreadful. I don't know what to do. If, if only I didn't love him. I've tried to be a good wife to him. You've given him three lovely children. Oh, why don't you take him away? You've never seen him like he was tonight. Shouting that you were something terrible. Yeah, oh, man. I've managed him before and I stand him now. It's my husband, Mary, but you must go. I've set a bit of supper for you in the lounge. Oh, I don't think I can manage anything, but it's very sweet of you, dear. I think he's asleep now. I believe he took something. Yes. Well, the illumination's nice in Blackpool. Yes, they, they were lovely. I met my sisters, Mrs. Nelson and Mrs. Madden, you know. We all went along the front. They wouldn't let me get away until half past eleven. And there's the tower all lit up. Yes, it looked beautiful. Everyone was laughing and happy. 
walking along the front, 20 or 30 abreast. There was music everywhere. Oh, it was like going into a different world. You must go there tomorrow, Mary. I'll give you your fare. You must see it. It sounds wonderful. Would you like a cup of tea? Yes, I would. I, I suddenly realized that I have a bit of a headache. Are there any aspirins about? No, but I expect there's some in the doctor's surgery. I'll go and have a look. <gasps> Mary! What's happening here? The furnace is overturned, drawers pulled out, bottles smashed on the floor. It was him. I told you he'd been pretty bad. But he smashed the place up. Didn't it wake the children? Yes, that's when I went up to them. But look at his papers. They're everywhere. His case book. He's torn it up. Mary, what are all these letters? They're from India. Shut the door, Mary. Yes, ma'am. Oh, never knew he had letters from India. Look at the postmarks. Some of them are quite recent. What's this? My ever dearest darling, I treasure any letter of yours, my dear, like jewels and pearls. Keep them under lock and key. People over here talk that you are leading a gay life in England. But I have complete confidence in you. And I know that you will keep your word to me. Until I die, I shall always think of the six happy months that I spent with you. With thousands of affections and kisses. Your ever-loving wife. His wife. But I'm his wife. Oh, no. No. Oh, Mary. But Daddy, Daddy. Daddy. Love letters, all of them, from his wife in India. Oh, don't you realize what this means? I'm not married to him. He's a bigamist. I'm a German. Oh, so you come back, you dirty, eh? You're let me get my hands on you, eh? Huh? You're a devil, you're not a man. You're a devil. I know all about you. You've got a wife in India. You're not fit to land. Well, I'm a devil, am I? Eh? I'll kill you. I'll kill you. for our special study. It's a little bit terrifying, isn't it? And it's real. But don't you think that perhaps a study of such a man as Ruxton may have helped us to understand the awful possibilities of the human mind? It has certainly helped the scientists of Scotland Yard to keep careful tabs on known criminals who are suspected of similar mental complexes. Now let us go back to September the 29th, 1935, just 14 days after the crime in Lancaster. The place is the little town of Moffat, 63 miles from Edinburgh. The scene is the local police station. Very nice too, Sergeant, if I may say so. Uh, I was just looking in the book. I see old Maguire's reported the loss of his bull terrier. That'll be the one that bit Mrs. McPherson, or I'm a Dutchman. Aye, 
And I'm a Dutchman. If I didn't hear Mr. McPherson's gun go off in McPherson's cowshed yesterday morning, I asked him what he was doing. <laughs> I reckon I know now. Did he have a gun license? Aye. Uh, a pity. I'm rather partial to bull terriers. <laughs> Hello, what's the sergeant? Quick, do me the bridge. Take it easy. What's the trouble? My sister found it and then she came to me. I had a look now on all the way here. What is that, man? There's a parcel in the ravine and there's a human arm sticking out of it. Report information CID just come in. Oh, let me see it. Thank you. Hmm, method, eh? Four parcels containing human remains found in ravine on Edinburgh Carlisle Road. Stop. Remains consist of two heads. Good heavens. Two legs, two arms, two hands, several large pieces of flesh, four or five large bones, and a number of smaller bones. Portions of a human trunk and the lower portions of two legs. Inspector Green of the CID lost no time in visiting the scene of this gruesome discovery. We've discovered 30 parcels so far, Inspector. And a dreadful job it's been. Yes, I'm sure it has. You're sending them straight off to Professor Glacier as they come in, I take it? That's right, sir. They're going straight up to the hospital in Edinburgh. I understand that the murderers made every effort to destroy all means of identifying his victim. They are hacked to pieces, sir. But I understand the remains are probably those of a man and a woman. A man and a woman, eh? Hmm. Mm, I see that one of the parcels was wrapped in a child's woolen rompers, another in an old green blouse, a quantity of cotton wool, a man's vest, some sheeting, and a number of newspapers. Well, they're not all of, a lot of help, sir, but, but they do fix the date of the crime, more or less. Uh, this Sunday uh, this one, you see, is dated September the 15th, so it couldn't have happened before then. Hmm. And a number of the parcels were found along the River Lynn. That's a contributory stream of the River Annanson. And the remains were well above the level of the water. You had any heavy rainstorms lately? Aye, sir. Let me see. It, it rained heavily on September the 18th and again on the 19th. Ah, so the packages would have been carried high up the banks of the stream by the swollen waters, and when the water subsided, they'd have been left there, wouldn't they? You're right, sir. So we can fix the date of the crime as being somewhere between the 15th and 19th. Somewhere between the 15th and 19th of September, two people out of a population of 48 millions had disappeared. There was little hope of identifying the bodies, and the first step was to make inquiries regarding all missing persons in England and Scotland. The investigation proved unproductive. Hardly surprising, you say? But the investigations were working along other lines. All the shreds of newspapers which had been found in the packages had been sent along to their appropriate publishers. And at last, the first real clue was furnished by a Sunday paper on September the 15th. Published in London, this copy proved to be of a limited edition, and it has been circulated in the district of Lancaster. Investigations were concentrated on the Lancaster area, and within a matter of hours, police officers were making their reports to Captain Van, the chief constable of Lancashire. 
Come in. Yes, Inspector Green, got anything? Yes, sir. I think I have. A girl named Mary Rogerson missing from her home. She's been employed as a nursemaid in Dr. Ruxton's house. Have you seen the doctor? Uh, no, sir. I went round, but both he and his wife were out. But I spoke to a neighbour, a Mrs. Oxley, who had been charring for the Ruxtons, and she said the doctor had told her that Mrs. Ruxton had gone away for a holiday and taken Mary Rogerson with her. I see. Find out the relationship between the doctor and his wife. Right, sir. Oh, and one more thing. You see those articles on the table? Yes, sir. A green blouse and Kitty's rompers. See if Mrs. Rogerson can identify them. And Mrs. Rogerson's Mary's stepmother, by the way, identified the green blouse immediately by a patch which she herself had sewn underneath the arm. In the words of Scotland Yard, the case was now developing satisfactorily. Reports were coming into the chief constable's office from different parts of the town. Remember, with a small population, news is apt to travel quickly. Have you observed the constantly recurring date in these statements, Green? You mean the 15th of September, sir? Yes. We appear to know quite a lot about Dr. Ruxton's movement from that day. Who is this? Uh, thank you, sir. At 6.30 a.m., Mrs. Oxley, the Ruxton's charwoman, was preparing to go to work when the doctor called and told her not to bother to go to his house that day. Oh, uh... Uh, Mrs. Oxley, uh, my wife and Mary have gone away on a holiday to Edinburgh and I am taking the children to Morecambe. But uh, come as usual tomorrow. At 10 a.m., Miss Roberts, a news agent, called at Ruxton's house to deliver some papers. He answered the door himself. He seemed agitated and was holding his right hand against his body. Uh, I am on my own today. Uh, Mary has gone up to Scotland. At 11 a.m., a Mrs. Whiteside brought her son for a minor operation. It had already been arranged and she was sharp on time. Again, he opened the door himself. Uh, I am sorry, but uh, I cannot perform the operation today as my wife is away in Scotland and there is only the maid and myself here. We are busy taking up the carpets and things ready for the decorators in the morning. Hmm. Uh, anything else, sir? Yes. At 2.30 p.m., he took his three children to the house of Mr. Anderson, a morphine dentist, a friend of the family, in whose charge he left them. And then at 6 o'clock, he seems to have lost his head. He went to the house of one of his patients, uh, Mrs. Hampshire. I am struggling to get my house ready for the decorators, Mrs. Hampshire. They are coming in the morning. My wife has gone to Blackpool, and Mary is away on holiday, and I have cut my hand very badly, and I, I wonder if you would help me. And he actually invited the lady to go back to his house with him and help him to straighten it out. Inside the Ruxton house, the startled Mrs. Hampshire found chaos. The radio was blaring, stair carpets had been pulled up, straw was scattered everywhere and plaster had been ripped from the walls. A supper meal laid in the lounge was untouched. Upstairs, doors were locked and the bath was discolored a dirty yellow up to within a few inches of the top. His action in taking Mrs. Hampshire to the house was inexplicable before, in consequence of what she saw there, she later became one of the principal witnesses for the Crown. Of course, he may have taken her there to save his reason. I personally should not have cared to enter such a house unescorted. Would you? Another point which uh, amazed the police was Ruxton's visit to the Chief Constable. Captain Van, I have come to you for protection. Have you heard the stories in the town? Sit down, Dr. Ruxton. Please calm yourself. Now, what is it? They are 
They are saying that I know all about the Moffat bodies. They are saying that this horrible crime is connected with the disappearance of my wife and maid. Even the papers are making these awful suggestions. The publicity is ruining my practice. Captain Van, you must please publish that there is no connection between the two. You must help me to find my wife. The chief constable consoled him to the best of his ability and proceeded with the investigations. Inspector Green was making good headway. I've collected some fresh evidence, sir. Ruxton told a friend that his wife had gone away in his car, not returned. But he allowed the car to be seen in Lancaster. He's also invented a totally untrue story that Mary Rogerson was going to have a baby and had disappeared for that reason. When I asked him how he knew, he replied, by her eyes and other symptoms. I'm certain he was lying, sir. The case for the public prosecutor was approaching completion. At the Crown Laboratory in Edinburgh, Dr. Glaster and a team of experts had assembled large parts of the two bodies. Artificial teeth were made and fitted to secure an indication of what the mouths had looked like in life. In all, 20 sets of 250 pictures were completed, and these included photographs taken from an overhead scaffolding after portions of the bodies had been assembled on the floor. By the 11th of October, Ruxton knew that he was a doomed man. He even approached Inspector Green. He took me by the shoulders and shouted as he flourished a newspaper in my face. <laughs> Look at this, Inspector Green. Look at it. Why do they accuse me of the Moffat murder? Somebody will be putting a dead body on my doorstep soon and I shall be accused of killing it. On the following day, October the 12th, 1935, the Chief Constable requested Ruxton to go to his office, saying that it was thought he could help in finding his wife and the maid. Dr. Buck Ruxton never returned from this visit. He was detained, and early on the morning of the 13th, he was charged with the murder of Mary Rogerson. There followed weekly remands until November the 5th. During this time, we were making a minute examination of the house in Dalton Square. The story of what had happened there was slowly unfolding. We completed our evidence with the discovery in the locked door of the letters from Ruxton's legal wife in India. Here, then, was the last link. On November the 5th, Ruxton was charged with the murder of his wife, Isabella Ruxton, and the maid, Miss Mary Rogerson. On December the 13th, he was committed for trial on both charges at the Manchester Assizes. In his charge to the jury, Mr. Justice Singleton referred to the distinguished body of evidence in the highest terms. He concluded by saying to the jury, uh, Gentlemen of the jury, you have heard the evidence, but if, in your opinion, there is any doubt in this case, the prisoner must have the benefit of that doubt. But if there is no doubt, then your verdict must be equally clear and justice must be done. There was no doubt, and Ruxton was found guilty and sentenced to death on March the 13th, 1936. The sentence was duly carried out on the 12th of May at Strange Bay's prison in Manchester. in this case? Throughout the trial, Ruxton behaved like a rag doll. He wept and protested his innocence. At the moment the square piece of black cloth was placed on the head of Mr. Justice Singleton, 
he became still and composed. As the judge concluded the formal sentence, Ruxton, with upraised arm, gave him the salute of an oriental warrior. Then, turning sharp left, he gave a similar salute to an astonished jury before warders handed him away. And the written confession in the sealed envelope? It was not published until several days after his execution. In it, all he said was, I killed Mrs. Ruxton in a fit of temper. I thought she'd been with a man. Mary Rogerson was present at the time. I had to kill her. Thank you for joining us and enjoying our digitally remastered old-time radio shows from SolvedMystery.com. Please remember to leave us a review and to follow us for frequent releases.